Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this special little mini-sode that we've got for you here today from the Film Stage Show. Of course, it is I, Brian J. Rowan, and uh, today, because we're going to be talking about Dragged Across Concrete, the newest film from S. Craig Zoller, previously of Bone, Tomahawk, and Brawl and Cell Block 99, we have a special 15-minute long interview that I was able to have with Zoller uh, after I was able to see Dragged Across Concrete. It's super short. Didn't have a chance to ask even a fraction of the stuff that I would have wanted to, but it gives you some insights into his growth as an artist, where he started, where he is now, how Dragged Across Concrete is different from all of his other films, and of course, it gives you just a brief insight into his creative process. So, hope that you enjoy, and uh, give a listen, and uh, look soon for our actual full review episode of Dragged Across Concrete. First of all, uh, it's great to talk with you. I've actually been a fan of yours since Bone Tomahawk. Um, I saw that movie because it was, it was like assigned to me and I was like, Bone Tomahawk, I've never heard of this, but it's got good people in it. And I watched it with my wife and just like within 10 minutes, we were just blown away, totally on board. And afterwards I was like, I'm going to watch everything that this man writes and directs from now on. And cool. well, thank you. So I, was, I appreciate the support. Yeah, no, I mean, I so rarely get to, to talk to people whose stuff that I, like, truly, truly love, so I feel like I need to get that out of the way just for my own soul. But I was curious, that was your first time directing. I looked on IMDb, I saw that you had, you know, some cinematography credits, and clearly you'd been writing for a while. So in prepping for that movie, like, what was your, your process? Like, walking into that, did you feel swaggeringly confident that you could really knock it out? So there's no swagger, swaggering uh, confidence when you're dealing with variables like horses. So I was, uh, I was aware how this, I knew how this movie could get made because I'd made, as a cinematographer and co-producer, uh, movies for far, far, far less money in similar amounts of time and in even, in, in even shorter amounts of time. Now, the, the complexity of this was, Different than any of those little indie movies, many many of which haven't haven't even been finished, or um, I'm I'm happy we're never finished. Uh, but this is when I was working as a cinematographer, and that was a, a different career. So I knew how to get this done, and, and the style of that movie uh, was partly a st- the style by choice, and partly the style of how could I get this done in the right amount of time. It actually, uh, that style was crystallized, and I feel. Better, a hundred percent appropriate for Brawl and Cell Block '99, and then the new one has a different style. But with Bone Tomahawk, I came up, I came in with a very clear way to do it. I knew I would lose some of the details of the script, uh, and I would not have time to be overly precious uh, about anything. There were some scenes for me to prioritize, but doing that in 21 days uh, with horses and this, you know, two-hour, 13-minute movie was was going to be tough so uh, not not exaggerating uh the the entire prep production would be different key crew people taking me aside at different points and say well we're never going to make this in this amount there's no way this can happen everybody uh throughout the entire time the actors always seemed on board and i I don't know what level of doubt they had uh they hadn't really seen the schedule of like okay so this day we're doing uh, 10 pages uh, and those, you know, and some of those pages will include horses and things like that. So 
it was it was pretty rough. I, I knew how to move quickly, and as soon as I see the take that I want, I'm good to move on. So it was my goal on the first day of shooting that movie was end early or end on time, kind of no matter what, so the rest of the crew can get some confidence. And we ended, I think, 75 minutes early on that first day, and I saw what I needed very early on. I didn't compromise, but it was not not the most difficult day in terms of what we were actually shooting. And that really just set things up in terms of people understanding that I can move fast and uh, and, and get stuff done. So I, I knew that if the crew followed and there weren't any accidents, which, of course, dealing with horses and things like that uh, and all these prop guns and all of the gore effects, there are many different accidents um, of, of different degrees of severity that could happen. Uh, but I knew that if that stuff lined up, I would be able to find my movie uh, on the day as soon as I see the take that I need and moving on. So a lot of you know, a lot of times we're doing we did two takes on that or, or three takes, and uh, and I, I don't do a ton of takes even with more time, but uh, I had the confidence that I could pull it off, and uh, the hope that the the one million variables that happen during the course of making a movie would not conspire against. Uh, me in in and and stop this thing from happening. And you uh, said you know that your style there kind of crystallized in Cell Block ninety nine, and then you know it changed for Dragon Cross Concrete. So between these three movies, have you kind of been able to feel out your own evolution as an artist, either you know through you know your familiarity with the process, or you know just the way that people are responding to you. Well, you've got to understand on the first one, you know, we, we would have a talk and say, okay, this all this is going to there's going to be no music for any of this stuff. You know, we, I would talk about, you know, everyone thought, well, the moment the people are kidnapped in Bone Tomahawk, you're going to cut to them riding out to get them. I said, I will not do that. And everyone mm-hmm. said, well, that's going to happen. You're going to want to pace it up. And I said, I'm not going to pace it up. And I said, if, I said, everything that's in that script is going to be in that finished movie unless the scene is a failure. And, of course, that whole, you know, learned goat scene where Arthur goes and uh, you kind of learn the history of the troglodytes and the, the fetching when, when Sheriff Hunt fetches Arthur, uh, when, when Chicory goes to the grave of his wife. All that stuff is in there, and, and that was stuff that everybody said would be gone. And, and the, thing, the thing that always led me with this is not, uh, as it might sound, pure arrogance, but my belief in my abilities as a writer and my belief that my abilities as a writer uh, exceeded my abilities as a director and that I, sh- that I need to trust in the script. You know, at that point I'd sold or had optioned more than 20 screenplays and had some novel, you know, and I already had some novels out. And I knew mm-hmm. that was the thing I should trust, that there's a reason that's in there and there are all the reasons when you're shooting to just, Oh, we don't really need this scene. Oh, this scene is important and all that shit that people say. But trust what I wrote because when I was writing, uh, the script for that movie and the other two, uh, that was a pure creative process where there weren't people saying, Oh, we want to have a lunch break or, Oh, this is going to be hard to get this shot or, Oh, this person really wants to leave early today. Like none of that crap is going on. You're just thinking purely creatively. So, um, so I came in very confident in the script, and then, you know, I, there were a lot of concerns uh, prior to the movie getting released in terms of 
the amount of, you know, the, the lack of music. You know, there's a little score there, but I don't know. About right. Six minutes of noticeable score, and then a, a couple of ambient drones, but very, very little. A lot of the empty space, a lot of long takes, a lot of people talking about things that have nothing to do with the plot. And so the critical response to that was very, very positive. And, uh, you know, when Vince came on Rolling Cellblock, Rolling Cellblock 99, he'd seen Bone Tomahawk and thought it was terrific and read the Brawl screenplay and thought it was terrific. So someone like that and anyone after the first one can see what I've done and can see the performances and can see that I'm very much about showing those performances in their in their purest form and uh, trying to limit the number of cuts. So that's a consistent approach for all three movies. But dragged across concrete, the the plotting is so much more complicated, and there are so many more characters and things going on. I couldn't do the style of the first two movies uh, in, in so far as communicating all the details that needed to be there. And I'm not going to have to, mm-hmm. you know, like. Those movies are predominantly handheld with um, maybe about a quarter locked off wide shots. And that's not a way to shoot a movie where 70 minutes or so of the movie uh, features people in vehicles. Like, I'm not, it's not going to be handheld on the hood of a vehicle. And all that stuff is, you know, we're really driving around or process trailer all around uh, the city. So I, I wanted to come up with a precise look. And, and also because I had a little bit more time. I didn't yet know how bad the shooting experience would be. Um, because I had more time, I could be more precise with my framing. And uh, so you see Dragged Across Concrete has not one handheld shot in the entire movie, whereas the previous two movies are mostly built with handheld shots, uh, which was, right. again, partly a style choice and partly a to facilitate shooting this much material and this much time choice. And with what you said about, like, Vince Vaughn having, like, seen Bone Tomahawk and really having liked it, um, did he approach you about being in whatever you were in next, or had you already kind of reached out to him? I, I'd reached out to him. I, yeah, okay. I reached out to him. I thought, I, I, wa- I thought he would be, I knew he was a good dramatic actor. I thought it would be an extremely interesting choice uh, and was hopeful that he would be uh, trusting and on board uh, to do the dramatic change that I saw, the shaved head, the accent, the mm-hmm. tattoo, the different gait, and all that sort of stuff. And he uh, was completely on board. And uh, as, as good as I thought he was, he, he wound up being better. And uh, great to work with and extremely versatile. Uh, so this is, I mean, the dramatic performance alone in that movie, I think, is incredible. And then on top of it, you have a physical performance that, you know, show me the other Hollywood star who did that. You know, those, that's just him. That's just rehearsal. That's him getting punched for eight takes to get that shot right. That's, you know, that's, that's commitment, and that's uh, very, very appreciated. And with him uh, having starred in uh, Mel Gibson's Hacksaw Ridge, was that sort of instrumental in, in getting Gibson onto this film, or was that another thing where you had reached out? The, the way it worked was when I'd originally written Dragged Across Concrete, I kind of had um, different visual ideas for what these guys would be, and they were both about 10 years younger than the actors who wound up playing them. And towards the end of Brawl and Subwatch 99, I said, well, I think I'm going to offer Anthony Lorissetti to Vince Vaughn. I, he, he can definitely pull this off, but I'm going to need someone for the role of Ridgeman 
who can match him, who has a weariness, who can, who can um, hold a two-shot with him because they share uh, a ton of them and, uh, and, and leap off the screen in the same way. So they're, they're, like, as soon as I put Vince in the role of Anthony, uh, there, there were only like a handful of people I thought could even do that role as the senior, um, far more embittered, uh, possible future self of, of Anthony Lorissetti. Uh, and, uh, you know, Mel, Mel was, Mel was a, a, a great choice. And Vince facilitated getting the piece to him. And Mel read it, was really complimentary and, and came on board. But yeah, once, it started with me putting Vince in the role of Anthony and then sitting, uh, trying to figure out who would be a comparable partner for him. And I think, uh, as you've seen, Mel Gibson was, uh, the, the, the best choice imaginable. Oh yeah, he's, I mean, he's fantastic in the movie. Between the, the gravelly voice, the kind of, the way that his face has weathered over the years. Yep. Um, was there ever any conversation about the idea that given the subject matter and his past, that it might be too controversial or almost detrimental to put him in? Or was it kind of smooth sailing the second that he was decided and he was on board? I mean, for me, going with all of these projects, I have creative control. And in terms of in, in terms of casting, Final Cut, um, you know, I co-write all the music. I, I sing that song in the diner even in this one. And... Um, I thought he would be great for the part, and we just went to him. There wasn't really a conversation uh, about what you're talking about. We were, of course, aware that there would be conversations later, and mm-hmm. uh, and and I, I understand why. But for me, it was purely a creative decision, and I don't think there was a better creative choice uh, to make. I'm not casting people based on um, uh, their, their personal lives, and his reputation... Uh, and uh, as a person to work with on set was fantastic. Uh, and he was a very hard worker. This was an uncomfortable shoot. And although, although it was an unpleasant shoot for, for a large part of it, that, that was because of a lot of technical problems and, and crew issues rather than, um, the performers, uh, you know, almost all of whom I would happily work with again, definitely including, uh, Mel. So we were aware that there would be discussion about it later, but there was no hesitation from me. Uh, especially once, you know, Vince said that he would, he would have, you know, he has access to him, you know, right away. And I was like, well, yeah, there isn't really a better choice for this role. Uh, so we just went with him right away, uh, aware that this would be uh, a talking point later on, but I'm not making it like a key creative decision, like who's going to be this lead character based on, um, discussions that would happen two years later. Yeah, no, and that that makes a lot of sense. And I know that was my last question, but just in a single word, how great is it having the OJs as part of your your process? It, to, I, I'm not going to answer you. It's, uh, working with the OJs is 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 one of the couple highlights of my life. <laughs> I imagine hearing so, those yeah. lyrics that I wrote and melodies that I came up with with my songwriting partner Jeff Harriet. Uh, that, that's a dream fulfilled that I never thought could possibly be fulfilled. I thought someday I would be working with really good actors on fiction I'd written, but having that experience with DOJs and also with Butch Tavares is, um, it, it's the dream I didn't even dare to dream come true. So, fantastic. <laughs> yeah, Shotgun Safari is a great song. 
Thank you. No problem. Well, thanks for taking the time to speak with me. I really appreciate it.